You're listening to the Main Street Finance Podcast, where we take the Wall Street bull by the horns to help you achieve your financial goals. Whether it's budgeting, investing, or financial independence, we tackle the big questions in the pursuit of financial literacy. And now, your host... Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Main Street Finance Podcast. I am, of course, Alex, your host, and this week we have a special guest. Nick Samaripas joins us today, and he is a career banker who has been in the industry for 21 years and is a former bank examiner for the Federal Reserve. Nick is coming on the show today to talk to us about banking, big banks or little banks, which one should be right for you, which one should you maybe lean more towards on the deposit side or the loan side? Well, he's here. Nick, welcome to the show. Thank you, Alex. I'm excited to be here. This is really going to be fun, I think. Oh, me too. The casual conversation episodes are always the most fun. Now, for my audience at home, usually I send a list of questions to people I have come on the show, and usually they have a chance to look over and prepare. But Nick's a friend. Nick's here on the show today, and we're just here to chat, spit all some ideas, throw some stuff around, and just have fun. No one's getting grilled today. This isn't the reverse mortgage episode. Certainly not doing that again for a little bit. <laughs> Well, and I've listened to several of your episodes, and, and I'm a very conversational person, so I think this is going to be a great little format, and and uh, you might get more out of me than what you bargained for. Oh, well, I hope so. Let's see. I mean, if we get too much, I mean, who knows? We might just split this into two episodes. <laughs> but uh, anyway, I know I just introduced you, but would you mind taking a minute or two and sort of going into your background and what it is you do and maybe what you've seen in your 20 years? Yeah, that's uh, be great. Appreciate that opportunity, too. Like you said, I'm a career banker. As soon as I graduated college, actually before I graduated college, I was already in consumer lending and uh, primarily starting out as a collector. Um, I guess <laughs> if you learn the, the bad first, you do better on the good later on in lending. And so started out like that as an intern and went straight into full-time employment in it. Uh, while I was in consumer lending, I, I pursued my master's degree in finance uh, already having my undergraduate degree in finance. And during that time, I got acquainted with uh, a lady who was working for the Federal Reserve in my area as a, as a bank examiner for the, uh, the safety and soundness reviews of banks in the area. And I uh, was able to, to get a job with them traveling across not only my local state, but across the country examining banks and just got a great education and background in banking, both large and small uh, institutions. And shortly after that, there was a, a bank locally in my area that was under some corrective action from, from banking regulators. And I was hired there along with a buddy to bring our background and experience. And we, we brought on some other new people to the bank to help clean it up. And so that was just an exciting and learning time uh, because I'll never forget when I was at the Federal Reserve as an examiner, a guy that started with me at the same time said, man, we just need the banking market to crumble and we will learn so much. Well, that was, you know, he said that before 2008 and 2009, before the market meltdown, the mortgage meltdown. And we did. We learned a ton and, and we got to go out and, and uh, help banks, actually, <laughs> a particular bank that was in trouble. So, so since then, I've just stayed in banking after helping out that bank. I've moved on to another bank. Uh, now I'm leading the commercial lending division for a local bank, but I've worked at both larger regional institutions and then also your smaller community banks as well and, and 
And so this topic, I, I think I've got a pretty good background in it with that history and can hopefully give some people some insights for both their business and personal, uh, what they need to look for when it comes to a bank. Absolutely. Especially with someone of your history and not only working in the banks, actually being a sort of cog in the machine and be able to see it from that side, but also from the Federal Reserve side, being able to sort of not think outside the box, but be outside the box, look in the box, poke the box, make sure the box doesn't break. And then we have, I really love the term corrective action because it really seems like a bank that's not really in trouble. You know, oh, you know, they just, they, sh- you know, are just kind of a little bit off the path. So they, they need a little correction. Uh, corrective action is uh, quite intense, I think, in my understanding of what that process is. Yeah, they can be. Um, definitely, I would say either as an examiner, you know, the banks feel the pressure or as a banker, the banker feels the pressure because there are, you know, these actions require certain timely corrections and, and you're, you're put on the clock. Sometimes the corrections are easy to, to be made. Sometimes they're not. And so, yeah, there's some pressure to it, but uh, that is the nice way of saying it. Corrective action. <laughs> <laughs> just, you know, corrective action, just, you know, just a small write up, just uh, turn your stuff around yeah. or else. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> All righty. So, Let's start with the deposit side and let's maybe look at it from a couple different viewpoints from maybe an individual consumer, someone who just wants to have a, their checking account, savings account, all that kind of good stuff. And then maybe more on the commercial side. So what kinds of pros and cons are there? Big banks versus small banks for the deposit side? I'm, I think it's the best place to start is the deposit side because that's the majority you've explained on previous episodes about banking. That's how uh, a banks operate is primarily through deposits and then lending out those deposits to borrowers. Because of the technological advances in banking, it has gotten a lot easier, I would say. For most individuals, first, it doesn't really matter whether you're at a small bank or a big bank. It used to matter, hey, you needed a big bank sometimes to have access to their ATMs for low-cost ATM fees or branch availability. But because of technological advances, uh, because there's less cash being used, you don't really need that access as much. Another determinant for individuals would also be maybe when it comes to their deposits, at, at least, is the savings rates that they may get on money market accounts, CDs, or just general interest bearing accounts. Small banks and big banks really compete in the same arena on those. I would say small banks sometimes can typically offer you a slightly better rate because it's usually harder for the smaller banks to get deposits in general. And again, banks need deposits to lend out. So the smaller banks, because of that difficulty, will often pay a little bit more um, than the bigger banks when it comes to savings rates and deposit rates so that they can earn your deposit business and in turn make a margin by lending out those funds. So the same for both of those aspects goes for commercial as well. Commercial accounts, again, because of technological advances, treasury services, even small banks, smaller banks like the ones I'm at right now, we've got the full suite of treasury management services that most commercial customers need. We can provide the remote deposit capture for them, the lockbox services, all that stuff. So that doesn't have as much determination on it as it does the deposit savings rates. Again, smaller banks can pay a little bit more. But on the flip side, when it comes to commercial deposits, typically those commercial deposits can be larger. 
And oftentimes it's harder for a smaller bank to manage those larger deposits. We need to see stability and a slow growth in our deposits, typically at a smaller bank. And when they're commercial customers, the ebbs and flows of those larger dollar balances can go up and down more widely and impact our balance sheet more. And that's another story. And that's another talk about banking, but we can still pay higher for those deposits. It's just maybe not as much higher because of how much they can fluctuate those bigger balances. Gotcha. So basically, if you're a bigger business and you have you know a lot of cash that you have on hand, a lot of cash flowing in and out on a daily, weekly, monthly basis, that's going to be more strenuous on a smaller bank because of those ebbs and flows and capital requirements and all that good stuff that a smaller bank might not be right for you if you have giant cash balances and those cash balances are constantly in flux. Correct. Yeah. If the ebbs and flows are, say the commercial customer it keeps on deposit about a million dollars for round numbers and the ebbs and flows are plus or minus a hundred or $150,000 all the time. Their balance is somewhere around in there. That's easy to manage. But when those ebbs and flows are 400 to 500, 600,000 ups and downs, you're going to be talking to your banker a lot more because we need to be prepared and make sure we've got either the money to outflow for you or we have a plan in place, which we typically do for when you do bring in a large deposit. It's just harder to manage. And so we may not we may not be as uh, wanting those deposits as more as as the ones that are more stable. <laughs> Absolutely. And speaking of not wanting deposits, I kind of just a quick note on current events right now. A lot of banks across the country have too much cash which is just a fun part. So we're actually in an environment right now where, I mean, everyone and their mother, if you have some kind of financial podcaster, blogger, whoever that you watch or listen to, you know that, you know, oh, savings accounts don't pay jack, checking accounts don't pay jack, whatever. Well, that's on purpose. There's a supply and demand for money. And right now, banks have no demand for money. They've got more than they need. They're, they have more than they can lend out. So the reason you're seeing those low interest rates on your checking and savings accounts is that, the banks don't want them. They're, they're not wanting to reward you for those because they don't they don't want it because every dollar they have that they don't lend out, they're paying you interest and not receiving any on the back end. So you're actually costing them money. Correct. You're exactly right. We're in a weird environment. I've, I've heard so many of my banker friends saying here lately, we are flush with deposits and we are all saying that. So yeah, you're exactly correct. Weird environment right now. Too many deposits. That's why... Sorry, consumers and commercial customers, you're not getting a very good rate. Absolutely. And then it's sounding like with improvements in technology, small banks, big banks, as long as a small bank has the features that you're looking for, there really isn't much of a difference between who you go to as long as you're not one of these companies that you know has a lot of cash or at least enough to where it would very much affect a bank's balance sheet. Is that about right? Yep, I'd say that's about right. And even those bigger customers that can affect a balance sheet, we're, we're likely not going to turn you away. We're just going to have a longer conversation at the smaller bank level. Uh, we're going to have a conversation with you about help us help you because we can give them the attentive deposit service they need and all the technology they need. But here's how we need you to help us on the balance management. So, yeah, we won't turn you away. But, yeah, you're, you're right on that. All righty. Well, Let's see, before I kind of transition us, did you have anything more on deposits or do you want to go ahead and move on to loans? I did have, yes, one other thing to mention about deposits. And you mentioned about how 
you know, if we can't lend out money, it literally is costing us for your money just to sit there. Another, I think, fallacy that both consumer and business customers have is that because you have a lot of deposits coming through our bank, that that's great for us. I've heard many times over the years, do you know how much money runs in and out of your bank because of my business or because of my personal deposits? Uh, Yes, we actually do. (laughs) We see it. But just because that money runs in and runs back out doesn't mean it really helps us. And again, it kind of costs us more. If it's not money that's, again, that stable deposit base that we can't faithfully depend on to lend out, um, then, yeah, it really is just costing us. So, yes, we do appreciate those deposit customers and we appreciate the ins and outs, but that's not always a key, big key in, in you getting approved for a loan. Absolutely. And I'm sure that's something that um, people on the teller side especially <laughs> are used to hearing. I know my uh, my fiance actually works on the retail side of banking and they hear a lot. It's like, oh, well, you know what? I have so much money in my accounts here. Do you know how much here? I'm helping you out. And there's a lot of times where you get those angry customers where she goes and she looks and they've got their average daily balance is like 200 bucks. It's yeah. like, oh, I've been a valuable customer for years and I've had, you know, deposits, da, 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 da. Well, if you've kept $200, I mean, if we got to keep fractional reserve banking, if we got to keep 10% aside, then we're only loaning out $180. And I'd hate to tell you, the, but the interest rate on $180, just uh, you're you're not keeping a bank profitable. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And like I said, I've listened to a lot of your episodes and I can't remember if you've talked about that average daily balance, but that is a key. We can see that number instantly. And of course, that feeds into the larger picture. What's our average daily balance for all of our deposits? And so, yes, we look at that number. One of the first things when talking about a customer and their ins and outs, and, and that can be a big factor. Oh, yeah, that's that's actually an episode I have scheduled to come out in the next couple of weeks. A deep dive into fractional reserve banking and all that kind of good stuff. Very nice. (laughs) So with that being said about the deposits, let's go ahead and talk about the loan side. Now, the loan side is usually the the more fun side and certainly the side that me as a credit analyst and you as a very practiced lender are probably more familiar with. But instead of sort of lumping them together like we did the deposits, let's let's split up our consumer and commercial. So let's go ahead and let's start with the consumer side. Um, before we really get into it, would you explain a little bit of what we mean when we call something a consumer loan? Yeah, great point, because uh, a lot of people um, get confused with that as well. Consumer practically means the individual or the person. And so when we talk about a consumer loan, it's going to be a loan to a person or persons for a personal purpose, whether that's to purchase a car, purchase a boat, refinance either of those purchase or construct a personal residence, and they're the ones that are doing that construction, or just a personal loan to refinance and consolidate some debts. That's a personal loan. With that, there is a lot of consumer protection laws. Now, I was a former bank examiner, but I was on the safety and soundness side. I was not what was called a consumer compliance examiner, which is a whole other realm whole nother set of uh, uh, books and rules that (laughs) banks have to follow to make sure that they're meeting the credit needs of the population of the consumers. And so, yeah, that's typically why, too, you'll have dedicated consumer lenders like I was back when I first started my career in banking, because there's so many rules. You want those people to, as, as the saying goes, stay in your lane. 
That way a bank can't get in trouble for messing up on one of the consumer protection laws, lending laws. Uh, they have these specialists in consumer lending. And so, yeah, that's what a personal or consumer loan is. Gotcha. And something I'd like to add in, something that I like to refer to uh, that are considered consumer loans are what I like to call toy loans. So if you want the new fancy RV, boat, ATV, side-by-side, Polaris, any and all of the toys, those are all consumer loans because it's not for a business purpose. It's to an individual or a group of individuals. And it's just for you to go out and have fun. You know, you need a new motorcycle, find yourself a consumer lender. (laughs) Correct. I like that. I like that reference. (laughs) <laughs> it's just toys that's that's just i know that's what i call it i don't know <laughs> yes. maybe i'm weird but uh so now that we've sort of set the stage here for consumer lending would you like to go into a little bit big bank small bank is there any reason to lean either way yes definitely and you know i hate to do it as a banker but uh i'll also include credit unions in this discussion as well most bankers don't like the credit union word. It's it's uh, <laughs> it's uh, blasphemy to them. But there are some advantages too to using credit unions. And I'll preface all of this that credit unions do have their advantages. And a lot of bankers are upset because it feels like anybody and anyone, any person, can be a member of a credit union. It used to be, it felt used to, like it had to be more stringent to be a member. But that looseness does provide some more availability for consumers to find beneficial loans for them. So again, I'm going to include credit unions in the discussion. When it comes to consumer borrowing, there is a difference. There, there, can, there can be a difference. And actually the pros and cons, it may be a pro for one aspect of a small bank versus a large bank, but to another group of banks, it may flip. It may be a con. And I'll explain what I mean in that. So for instance, big banks, because of their size and their sophistication, they typically have a scorecard model or a scoring system for their consumer lending. So they can be really fast, typically, with their consumer lending, because what they are able to do is they've gathered this data and within the consumer lending laws, they are able to show that they have set up a system that is fair and equitable to everyone. And based on your borrowing criteria, such as your credit score, your personal cash flow, your debt to income, those typical ratios that are looked at, you get X rate, X term for X lending, toy lending, real estate lending, whatever. So those can be very efficient, very quick. You can get a fast response on those typically because it's a scorecard model. So that could be a pro you know, of a, of a large bank over a small bank. However, it could also be a con. Because it's such a stringent model and because of the consumer protection laws, they, they can't stray from that, that box, essentially, of approval very often. They have to track these exceptions to this policy. They have to track those exceptions to this approval process versus a small bank who may not have this quick approval turnaround because they don't have a scoring model could probably look at the same aspects. And now instead of you getting declined for a loan, you can actually get approved, but it may take you a little bit longer. So again, it it would vary from bank to bank. A large bank may have another scoring model that may have a little bit wider standards. And um, you may not have been able to get approved at X big bank, but at Y big bank, you could because their uh, scoring model has, again, a little bit wider standards. 
but you don't know those standards. They don't release these to the public, so you don't really know about those. So that's one thing. Smaller banks, they can get a little bit more creative in the personal loan request. So if you have just an interesting scenario, and I'm trying to think of one off the top of my head, but... Um, oh, I've got one for scorecards. Okay, what's that? All right, so here's how I'd explain it. So the way to think of a scorecard is you have a bunch of different boxes. So let's say box one is credit score. If you have greater than a 750, you get 10 points. 700 to 750, you get eight points. 650 to 700, uh, five points. And then the next category, let's say it's your debt to income ratio. Debt to income ratio is zero to 25%, you get 10 points. 26% to 50%, eight points, something like that. So for each metric, there is a top score, middle score, a bottom score, and then like a fail. So what you do is you apply for a loan at a big bank. They're going to look at your stuff and they're going to count up your points. And let's say it's on a hundred point scale. If you get a 60 or below, you don't get the loan. You just get declined. If you get a 61 to a 70, you can get the loan, but you're going to get the maximum interest rate, uh, a lower loan amount, stuff like that. If you get between an 80 and a 90, then you get the much better terms. And then if you get a 90 to 100, then you get the absolute best terms. You get the longest loan. You can get the smallest interest rate, all the bells and whistles. And you know what? You also get the free coffee in the lobby. So <laughs> that's what's good about a scorecard is that it's easy for the bank to underwrite. Therefore, they can get back to you a lot quicker. The problem with that system is that there's no special cases or there might be special cases, but they're very unwilling to go to it. So let's say your credit score is a 650, but that's because you made a late payment, but it wouldn't wasn't really late because you were on auto draft. But, you know, the auto draft didn't auto draft the correct amount of money, yada, yada, yada. So it shouldn't be there. And you're in the middle of fighting with the credit bureau to get that fixed. Well, on a scorecard model, you don't get to explain that and get that put into a box. So what happens is they look at your score. Well, your score, you get zero points. You, you don't get the partial credit for that. But wait, there's a whole story there. I'm actually not at fault. This is in the process of getting fixed. Let me explain. Too bad. They couldn't check the box. You didn't fit in, so you don't get the points for it. So the advantage of a scorecard model is that it's quick. It's easy. It's really efficient, but there's not a lot of room for, oh, wait, I can explain that. But with a small bank, they look at each loan individually. They're able to go through and make those notes. Hey, there, this doesn't look as good, but that's because of this, that, and the other, and we can back that up. So a small bank might take longer for you to get the loan, but there's a lot more wiggle room. That is a great explanation of how a scorecard model can work. And yes, the pros and cons when it comes to that approval process, you're, you're exactly right. And what I always will tell people too, just because a bank doesn't have a scorecard model doesn't mean that they can do any and every loan under the sun. They still have to fit within regulatory requirements of consumer lending, but you're exactly right. They get to listen to that story. Typically, it's the story that I've always seen over the years is a medical collection. Yep. And, you know, it's it's like a child that was born with a, a defect and the bills just add up. The people end up paying them all. But there was something that was bad reported for their credit report. 
and it imp- it's impacting them for many years. And you've seen, you've gotten proof that it's all been paid, but it's still impacting their score. And nobody gets to get told that story in a typical scorecard model. You're exactly right. Yeah, the medical billing is a thing. And this is a, just a fun fact. This wasn't part of the story today, but since we're on it, the problem with the American healthcare system is that, say you have something happen to a child while you're going through a birth. Everything's fine. Baby comes home okay. The problem is you never get one bill. <laughs> You've got the doctor that delivered the baby. That's going to be a bill. You've got the hospital stay. That's going to be a bill. If there was an anesthesiologist that was there, you're going to get the anesthesiology bill. Uh, maybe even the cafeteria is going to have a separate bill. Like you're going to get five, six, seven, eight different bills. And if you pay all of them, but like miss one surprise, now you've got a medical collection. So you could have been doing it right the entire time, but you know, one slip through the cracks, it happens. I mean, my fiance got a surgery six months ago and we just got a bill for it from, I, I forget who it was, but we just got a bill like two weeks ago that was like, Oh, Hey, by the way, there was also this, uh, that, yeah, we could have sent you this bill six months ago, but you know, our system, it takes a while to process. Sorry guys. So it's gotten so bad to the point that when FICO, the Fair Isaac Corporation, was reevaluating their model for, I think it was model 9.0 is where we're at now, they've actually reduced the weight that medical collections specifically affect your score. So if you have if you're 30 days late on a phone bill, you're gonna get hit, say 20 points, you lose. I'm just making this up, don't quote me. You're late on an ATT bill, you're gonna lose 20 points. If you're late on a medical bill, it might be five points. So they have specifically adjusted the credit modeling so that if it's a medical collection, it's not going to hit you nearly as hard as a regular collection because this practice is so pronounced. Wow. Wow. I'm glad to hear that. Well done, FICO, because um, that has been a big issue for a long time. And I know, like you said, we, we kind of split off here on a, on, a, on a subject, but this is a personal finance podcast. And I think that's important for someone to know, one how it can impact your credit history and your credit report scores. Um, but two, that, Hey, it sounds like there's some relief uh, out there for people that, cause you, they do, they slip through the cracks all the time and I've seen it hundreds of times and yeah, that a scorecard model, it will still hurt you. Unfortunately it can. Perfect segue right back to the scorecard. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And, and, and I'll say too, that's the other thing um, you, you mentioned the toy lending Typically, at larger banks that have these scorecard models, that's typically all they're going to lend for, the toys or the real estate that's the known. If you start to wander too far off and it's like, hey, I want to purchase a vehicle, but it's a collector car. You know, well, there's some banks that man, that's not part of their scorecard model. They'll do automobiles, but they won't do collectibles, you know, or they won't get you a personal line of credit to take to an auction for a collectible car. You know, whereas a small bank can usually do those kinds of things because they've got a little bit more flexibility. Maybe they've never done something like that before, but they can get creative and do those things because they're not confined to the box. There you go. So I think I think the takeaway here with consumer lending is that if you're someone who can check boxes really easily, you know, there's no questionable things in your credit history or there's nothing weird looking. There's nothing that you feel like you'd have to sit down with a banker and explain and then it would make sense you can probably go to a big bank and be perfectly fine. But if you are someone who is in the middle of dealing with something or maybe you can't check every box or maybe you know, you're know you not the most perfect candidate, maybe a smaller bank might be better because they can be a little bit more flexible. They can't give you everything, but 
if you have a story and that story makes sense and you know you can back it up a smaller bank can be a lot more flexible with lending to you and it's not just saying oh well you didn't check the box sorry yeah they would be the better place to start at least for sure be the smaller bank if you do have a story and going back to the scorecard model too some actually think hey the scorecard model is there to be fair and equitable to everyone but some have the feeling too that it actually discriminates even more so uh, now because it can box people out so easily and that, yeah, that if you have one bad knock on your credit report, then you're typically not going to go to a big bank. So there kind of has been some pushback on it. I don't think it'll ever change because it does keep them efficient and, and running smoothly and gets people credit quickly. But uh, yeah, there, there's some, some comments out there about it uh, kind of almost being discriminatory in itself, the way it's been set up. Yeah, I mean, which is ironic because a big reason besides the efficiency and ease at which you can do approvals with a scorecard. One of the best benefits on the banking side is that you can't be accused of being unfair. It's not that, oh, uh, the big bad banker saw, you know, the kind of car I drove or the kind of car I drove, you know, I drove a 1999 Honda Civic or my skin color, my religion, whatever. No, you got declined because you didn't check the boxes. Look, I mean, here's your credit report. Here's the documents you gave me. I mean, is that's all in here. And according to our model, our scorecard, which we use for every single person who comes in here and asks for a loan, this is why you failed. Like there was no personal bias or no other thing. So having that scorecard is kind of a defensive thing on their side, too. Yeah, totally agree as well. And one other thing, too, going back, I said I was going to talk a little bit about credit unions. So the one difference for credit unions is that Typically, not always, they can offer slightly lower rates on consumer loans than your traditional large bank or um, small community bank. Some that probably don't know this, taxation is different for credit unions. They're considered a nonprofit. And what they try to do is they try to pass that savings on to the, the members. And like I said earlier, you know, membership is a lot more easier at credit unions than it used to be. So, yes, you can get typically better rates, but I will caution, too, and I I won't deny either. I've taken advantage of credit union rates in the past years whenever I was looking to save some money, or it just happened to be the lender that my paper, the paper was being sold to or being bought by at the car dealership happened to be a credit union. But the thing about that is, yes, you're getting a great rate, but you may not be necessarily developing a relationship with a banker. And There is still relationship banking that's out there, especially in rural communities or rural communities just outside of a metro. Uh, It's it's never has hurt to know a banker. And, you know, most anything in life, it feels like banking is needed, whether it's deposits or loans. And so sometimes it may be worth paying a little bit more to keep a relationship with a local bank than it is to go get that credit union rate if, if that's what you're specifically seeking. Now, sometimes that's all you're looking for is the lowest rate. Go for it. You know, you don't need a banking relationship. Definitely, definitely go for it. Um, or you have plenty of banking relationships and you do just need a low rate, then yeah, go for it. But um, that would be my one word of caution. And again, I said I would talk about them. So there, it was mostly all good about them. <laughs> Merry Christmas. <laughs> Promise made, delivered, check the box. All righty. So with that, let's go ahead and let's talk about commercial lending. Now, this one can get very interesting because there's a big difference between 
you have a t-shirt screen printing business to where you need a, say, $100,000 line of credit versus you own a car dealership and you're going to need a couple million dollars to buy the dealership and then a floor plan line of credit to purchase the cars. So I imagine there's going to need to be some uh, subcategories within commercial. But before I already put you in a box, let's go ahead and talk about lending. Big banks, little banks, pros and cons. Okay. Yeah. And Alex, you are right in that we can spend a lot of time talking about the difference in lending between big banks and small banks. And I'm not going to try to get too far into it. And I'm not hopefully try not to confuse everyone, but I do want to hit on the primary aspects that if you're a business owner or you're thinking about starting a business, what you would need to consider. First, kind of what you were mentioning there, let's talk about the size of loans. All banks have a regulatory lending limit. As Alex has mentioned on previous podcast episodes before, banks are taking someone else's money, depositor money, and lending it to other people. So there's a a safety and a risk standpoint there. Along with that, banks have these regulatory lending limits that says, okay, of the deposits and of the money that you have available to lend, here's how much you can lend to any one borrower or aggregate borrowers of a group of connection at any one time. The bigger the bank you are or the more capital that the bank has, typically that uh, legal lending limit is higher. If you go above that legal lending limit, well, um, you got a lot of reporting to do. You got a lot of explaining to do. And, <laughs> and so what banks have to do is they have to manage that legal lending limit with their borrowers by either selling off participations, which I know Alex has talked about before in other episodes, selling off participations or doing syndications um, where groups of banks get together to to lend to this one larger customer. So inherently, bigger the bank, the more they'll be able to lend. So if you are a big business and this is of a concern to you, you feel like I'm going to need to borrow more than than this small bank is going to be able to lend to me, then you'll want to go to a bigger bank. However, don't forget, smaller banks can move quicker, typically. If, if you don't have these bigger borrowing limitations, you can go to the smaller bank and they can meet your needs sometimes a little bit faster, especially if you're in a hurry to get the credit that you're needing. And they can be the leader of your syndication. They could be the ones that sell off the participations. Uh, It doesn't have to be the bigger bank that has to be the lead position. Um, You can have, like I would say myself, uh, I'm not tooting my own horn here, but I've done larger loans. And just because I'm at a smaller bank doesn't mean that we can't do them for you. I may have the expertise. Let me lead the deal. If it's a specialized something that I work in, and have experience in, let me lead the deal and I'll find the other banks that I can sell participations to. We get you your credit that you need fast and on the terms that you're hoping for, hopefully, and you don't even have to worry about the legal limit or any of those things. All righty. Let me see if I can't uh, simplify a little bit just to make sure in case we lost anyone there. So legal lending limit. Banking is very much a return of capital instead of return on capital. So because of the work that we do, if we lend out $100,000 and we're charging a 5% interest rate, that's $5,000 a year in interest. Which do you think the bank cares more about? The $100,000 it lent out or the $5,000 in earnings? So in any case, we want a return of capital. That is 100% something we have to do. We have to get our money back. 
And then once that's feasible, then we can start worrying about the interest. Because the fact of the matter is, we're not lending out our money. We're lending out depositor money. So if we suffer a big loss, sure, the bank's going to have to pay out of pocket for it. But what if the bank doesn't have that? Now, we're going to start going down a rabbit hole real quick. So I'm going to cut that off there. But the point is, if you are a very large borrower, say you're going to need $10 million, if you go into a bank, they may not be able to give you $10 million because that $10 million is going to represent a significant amount of their depositors' money. So that if something happens with that $10 million and you know something goes wrong with the deal, something goes wrong with the borrower, and that $10 million isn't returned, we're going to have a lot of depositors that are out of money and the FDIC is going to get involved, the Federal Reserve is going to get involved. It's a whole mess. So to avoid that, each bank has a federal legal lending limit. And what that lending limit is, is, hey, for any one borrower, because of your size as a bank, you can only lend out X amount of money. So what Nick is saying is that if you think you are going to be such a giant borrower that you might run into that with a small bank, you might want to lean towards larger banks. However, you can go to a smaller bank and they'll do what's called a participation or a syndication. And all that means is, hey, you might be too big for ABC Bank by themselves, but ABC Bank has a good relationship with XYZ Bank. So if you need $10 million, what we'll do is we'll call XYZ Bank and say, hey, here's the deal we got. They want $10 million. I'll put in five if you put in five, and then we'll split the profits. So XYZ Bank will look at everything and say, sure, why not? So if that's the case, you can still go to a small bank. However, it's just something to consider. Do you want to go to a big bank or do you want to go to a small bank and see if they'll finagle that for you? Alex, I, I think you might have been a former examiner yourself. That was exactly a much clearer example, too, of what I was explaining. Because, um, yes, it doesn't necessarily mean you can't go to the small banks or you need to go to the big banks or whatever. But that was a great example of, of how, how the legal lending limits work and how it can play into your decision. Because here's the other thing. There's a legal lending limit, but then most banks also have what they call their hold, their internal hold limit. That's typically below their legal legal lending limit. Uh, And so, yeah, there there could be even a lower number. But as a business owner or someone looking for a commercial loan, those are just kind of some of the things you might want to think about. For some, it doesn't even bother them. But uh, for others, if they know that they're going to be essentially at the top limit for a bank, they won't talk to that bank. And it's not because they are better than them or they don't need them. It's just that they know at some point they're going to have to hit hurdles that could cause interruption to their business. So they're just going to go to the bigger bank to start with. And that's that's totally what they're there for. Yeah. I mean, at a certain point, you kind of got to play in your own sandbox. Like You can't be Coca-Cola and have all of your bank accounts at uh, XYZ Bank of Missouri. Now, I'm sure XYZ Bank of Missouri is fantastic, but if they're a $2 billion bank and you are a trillion dollar company, uh, there's there's probably not a lot of services that they're going to be able to do for you without having to get some of it out there. And Nick, thank you for the compliment. Uh, although 80 something episodes will uh, give you an ability to, <laughs> to explain stuff. <laughs> oh, Lord. And you get a people email you questions and you start to get an idea for, OK, so this is the kind of stuff I need to make sure I'm hitting on. Uh, yeah. Which, by the way, if any of y'all have questions on any episode, MainStreetFinance at gmail.com. But, uh, <laughs> right? Yeah. Segways, plugs, I'm good for all of it. All of it, yeah, that's right. But keep in mind, 
hold limits, internal limits. This is all stuff that you as a customer probably won't get a lot of experience with, even if you're at that level. And the levels we're talking about are almost ridiculous. Unless you're at a very small bank. I mean, we're talking 10, 15, 30, 40, 50, 70 million dollars might be these hold limits. So unless you're really rolling in it, and chances are, if you're that rich, you're not listening to me, you probably have a lot of professionals that you pay. Chances are you're you don't have to worry about any of this. (laughs) But some fun facts. That's right, Alex. And, you know, the other thing about that is, at least in my area, uh, the banking community is so small and we know each other all fairly well, it has really changed to where if you're busting at those limits or above those, um, you typically already have a couple of banking relationships anyways, with maybe if you like the smaller bank, then you've got two to three small bank relationships and lenders at those places. It just kind of all depends on your personal preference. You know, do you like working with multiple banks and having those relationships or do you like working with one or two big banks and, and, and doing that route? So yeah, you're right. Absolutely. So all of that's something to consider if you're a bigger borrower, which if you're an entrepreneur, that's the route you want to go for. We all hope you get there. So this is all yep. good for information for you. But uh, let's focus a little bit more on smaller businesses, maybe startups or let's say medium size, you know, making a healthy amount of money, maybe let's say less than $2 million a year. So I mean, you're not crazy big, but if you're sort of at that more mainstream level, big banks, small banks. Great. You know, like you said, you got all the segues. So, yeah, we've talked about the bigger borrowers. These smaller borrowers are a different animal. And I will say that if you're a startup business, the typical route that every new entrepreneur typically always pursues is an SBA or small business administration backed loan. I want to first say that a lot of people, it feels like, have this belief that if you're going to pursue an SBA backed loan that you're instantly going to get approved. And that's not always the case. Um, you have to remember that the bank that is looking at this loan for you first would have to analyze the loan as if they would do it without an SBA guarantee. And an SBA guarantee is beneficial for the bank that's making the loan. It helps them feel even more comfortable than they already felt with the loan they just approved because it does say, Hey, If this business goes bad, you've sold off all the collateral and you still have a shortfall and can't get all your capital back, like you said, because we're a return of the capital, uh, then this SBA guarantee will step in and and repay that up to a certain limit. So, yes, it is is helpful. But just again, because it's an SBA loan request doesn't mean it's going to get approved. But if you are to go in the SBA route, what I would say is seek a bank that has a dedicated SBA lending department. Typically, states or your business newspapers will put out monthly, typically, reports on who has done the most SBA lending in the state or in the metro. And you can get that information and seek out those banks. Or you can also go to sba.gov. They've got a lot of resources on that information of what banks have these dedicated SBA lending departments. Also, through SBA.gov, you can get a lot of resources as to what your new startup or small business that's already in operation would need in order to prepare a loan request package for new credit. And again, this can be for a startup or pre-existing business that's seeking an SBA loan. So again, big banks typically have the advantage in SBA lending because they have those dedicated departments. And even me now as a small bank lender, 
I would say go to them because they do they do have that expertise and they can get you what you need. If you're a small business, like you said, under two million in revenue a year, so you're under two million in your sales, and you're needing to say borrow for a new a couple of vehicles for your fleet, or you're needing to borrow for another office, you know, you're setting up another location of your business. You're going to have the same pros and cons typically between small banks and big banks that you would, as we discussed earlier, your smaller bank can move faster, can typically get you an answer more quickly because there's not as many protocols and things to check. They can sit down with you typically more quickly, can set up a meeting to discuss the opportunity. And again, can get your response typically faster. But a bigger bank, although they may be a little bit slower, they have a higher risk appetite. So if adding two more vehicles to the fleet or adding a new location of your business adds this aspect where the bank is having to rely on new sales or new revenue to support this loan request, the bigger banks can have a little bit more of a risk appetite to take on the unknown, what bankers would call the unknown. Uh, we, we don't know how this new location will do. We don't know if adding two more vehicles to the fleet will actually increase revenue, but they can sometimes take a chance on you. They're still going to back it with your projections or what's commonly called as pro forma statements of what you anticipate sales will increase by and, and your profitability will increase by. Uh, but they can sometimes take a bigger chance because, again, they're a bigger bank. They've got more capital that they can lend and, and still do it prudently. Whereas the smaller bank, again, well, shoot, this new location is going to cost $500,000. We can't risk losing $500,000. I believe in the business and the idea, and I could do it quickly for them if I could do it, but it, it may be too big of a jump for us to take at a smaller bank. Yeah, and that's kind of the trade-off that you get. It's either speed or a higher risk appetite. So with a smaller bank, you can get more, as we explained earlier, you can get more exceptions potentially, or a better chance to explain your story because maybe it's a committee of local lenders and you're able to talk to your lender and get them to really fight for you. So stuff can move faster and they can deal with more, oh yeah, this looks bad, but let me explain. But with a bigger bank, even though there's not a strict scorecard, there might still be a if they can't check this box, we're not going to get this done kind of attitude. But because it's a much bigger bank, they have a lot more deposits. There's a lot more loans out there. And because there's more loans, they can better absorb the blow if they were to lose money. So because of that added cushion that a bigger bank might have, they might have a little bit more of a risk appetite because, hey, 1% of our loans going bad at a big bank is a much bigger number than 1% of our loans going bad at a small bank. So speed and efficiency and being able to explain yourself versus bigger risk appetite, bigger dollar amounts, but maybe less of a relationship depending on who you're talking to. So is that effectively what we're looking at? Yeah, I think that's effectively, in my opinion, it's effectively what we're looking at. And to me, it's the primary thing when considering small bank versus big bank. A lot probably think it's, well, where can I get the cheapest money from? Where can I get the lowest rate? And I'll talk about that in a second. But yes, effectively, um, that's exactly what we're talking about. Yeah. So, I mean, that's that's the short version right there. If you're you're waiting this whole episode, if you're a business owner to get the pros and cons, there it it was. (laughs) That's right. But uh, definitely want to talk about the people that just chase rate because those are 
definitely on my side as an analyst, and I'm sure more so on your side as more of a lender. Yeah. The, those are the more fun people. Yes. And that's the correct term. We call it rate chasers or just chasing the rate. And I know listeners are probably going to say, especially the business owners, but this even applies for consumer lending too. Consumers can chase rates as well. Bankers really don't like it, (laughs) plain and simple. We truly, when we say we want to develop a relationship, we truly mean that. And we hope that there's a relationship being developed where, yeah, you may have a connection with two or three bankers across town, and that's totally okay. And you go to banker A because they're fast. You go, so you you use them on those fast deals. You go to banker B for the deals that we call that say have a little hair on them. They're a little unusual. (laughs) Banker B can get those deals done for you. Um, And you know, it may not be a great rate and it may not be fast, but they can do it. And then there's banker C who is um, neither can do the hairy deals or is fast, but has a really low rate. You know, and so you you kind of have these relationships and you place them. But if you start to pit all three of those borrowers against each other just solely for rate, bankers stiff it out pretty quickly. And some play along and will do that game. But uh, really deep down, it doesn't earn you a whole bunch because especially in banking circles, the reputation hit you can take uh, can be more detrimental. Rates typically between large banks and small banks nowadays, again, because of technology and access to capital or access to funds, pretty much there's not a huge difference. Most even small banks, in my, this bank size I'm at now versus the large bank that I was previously at, we have access to the same interest rate hedge and capital markets. So we can get long-term fixed rates just like the big banks can. And then when it comes to short-term borrowing rates, like say your typical five-year equipment loan, five-year fixed rate, sure, we may be paying a little bit higher rate for our deposits um, that we're lending out, but because we don't have a whole bunch of locations or a whole bunch of people, we don't have a bunch of overhead to pay. So we can pretty much lend our, have our loan rates be the same as the big banks. Um, Big banks can typically have super cheap deposits, which means they can typically charge lower on their loans and make still a good interest rate margin, as you talked about before. But again, smaller banks can kind of match that because we just don't have that overhead expense that we have to cover. So in general, interest rates, you can get pretty much good rates anywhere across town. And it doesn't hurt to call or sh- or lightly shop if you're still trying to get to know your customers. But if you ever, just as warning, if you take a term sheet from one bank and a term sheet is not a commitment, but it's a saying, here's what we could typically do on a deal. And typically in there, it says, here's what payment term we can put you on. Here's what maturity can put you on. And here's what interest rate we can put you on. If you take those to another bank and say, beat this, they may try to do it, but mm, it, it doesn't do a lot of good for your reputation. I'll tell you that. Yeah. Something you guys should probably know. Bankers talk. Like just because you're a Bank of America banker and someone else, the guy down the street is Regions, doesn't mean those guys get together, don't get together at the Chamber of Commerce and talk about you. (laughs) Not like your financials or anything private, but like, oh, hey, have you ever done a loan for these guys? Especially if you're a big name in your area, like if you're a big construction company, like if you're shopping different banks, all the bankers know, like they're all talking to each other, like they're all friends go play golf together, like it, don't think that you know you're keeping secrets. Oh, banker A doesn't know I'm talking to banker too. 
We we know. Yeah, <laughs> we know. We know. And like you said, we don't ever talk about confidential information, but we talk about publicly available information or just in general. Hey, have you ever worked with them on a loan? And, you know, there's code words. Yeah, they were easy to work with. I'd do business with them again. Or there's, uh, we did one deal for them. I haven't done one since. That's the other code word for probably not going to do another one with them. <laughs> so. <laughs> And then when everyone in the room goes, oh, you talking about so-and-so? Oh, yeah, I've talked to him. <laughs> it's like, yeah. Then everyone looks around and goes, oh. <laughs> oh they're the shopper. <laughs> Everyone's talked to them. Show of hands. Who's spoken with so-and-so about uh, an equipment loan? Everyone's hands go up. Ah, now we all uh-huh. know the score. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, you're right. Oh. All righty. So I actually had another topic I wanted to bring up to you, but we're kind of knocking on... Uh, as long as I want to be on this episode for not anything against you, but okay. you know, attention spans and people seeing squirrel, but Nick, I mean, normally for all my guests, right at this time of the show, I ask for them to, you know, put in their plugs, you know, where can they find their Twitter accounts, websites, whatever. But unlike most of my guests, you're not really a podcaster blogger or anything like that. So there's not really a, there's, there's not really anything for people to go look for. <laughs> oh Lord. I mean, is there no, anything you want to plug out there on the, uh, let me think. Because normally it's like, oh yeah, if you want to find it, if you want to hear about more of me, here's like my Twitter account, my whatever. But <laughs> yeah, that's right. Oh yeah, totally understand it. Um, but yeah, no, I would say I'd post nothing to Twitter. It's just news for me. Uh, my Instagram <laughs> is locked down. My Facebook is locked down. So <laughs> yeah, I'm not promoting anything. Well, alrighty, Nick. Unfortunately, there's nothing for us to really plug. And for those audience members that felt really inspired, um, there's really nowhere you can go to find him. He's just uh, Mr. Confidential over here, even though we gave his first and last name. Doesn't post anywhere, but you know what? He still came out and joined us today. So, Nick, I just want to say thank you so much for joining us today. It was a great conversation. Well, thank you. It was, too. And, you know, just because I don't post a whole lot doesn't mean they can't submit questions to you. And I'd be happy to answer any other questions or give resources. I've done other talks for like local Better Business Bureaus and helping small businesses get prepared for things. So, yeah, if you have any other questions, hit up the Main Street Finance channels and I'd be glad to answer them. Well, there we go. Thank you. So now you guys have y'all have questions. Nick's ready for you. Just shoot them to me. I'll shoot them over. That's going to be MainStreetFinance at gmail.com or on Twitter at MainStreetMoney. And both of those links will be in the description below. Nick, thank you so much for joining us. It's really been fun. I know I already said that before, but yeah. really, bottom of my heart, thanks again for joining us. Same here, Alex. Glad <laughs> to know you and thank you. All righty, y'all. You guys have a good week. I will see you all next time. Thank you for listening to the Main Street Finance Podcast. Have a question on today's topics or have suggestions for future episodes? Send an email to mainstfinance at gmail.com. Sharing is caring, so if you learned something new and useful today, make sure you share with friends and family. Don't forget to like and subscribe to be notified of new episodes. For demonstrations and more examples, be sure to check out the YouTube channel. We'll see you next time.